You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and the Dow did just hit a record high about half an hour ago. The S&P above its closing high as well. Here's what's ahead today on The Exchange. Legendary investor Paul Tudor Jones sounding the alarm on inflation, saying it could be worse than originally thought. This as the 10-year yield jumped to nearly 1.7% earlier today. So why do stocks keep rallying? And is PayPal courting Pinterest? The two companies reportedly holding merger talks. Why this seemingly odd pairing could make sense for both sides. And in rapid fire, Netflix is sliding, Facebook is rebranding, and retailers are panic buying. But we begin with this continued march higher for stocks. Bob Bassani has our numbers today. Bob? And the key point here, Kelly, uh, is we are at a new closing high. If we close right here, that's a new closing high. 45.35 was the old closing high for the S&P 500. That was back on September 3rd. We're, as you see here, about three points over that. So let's see if we can make that. But it's quite a move up, and it's been helped by a number of very big sectors. Most, most importantly, we had the banks reporting last week and this week. Those banks have had generally good numbers, and more importantly, stock prices for the banks have been moving up since the earnings seasons. That's usually not what happens. Usually you see selling after the earnings season comes out, but that's not what's going on. We are hitting new highs all over the place in the bank sector. Comerica, Fifth Third, these are what I call the super regional banks. They're the really heart of the earnings season uh, because they control a lot of business in the middle part of the country. Key Corp, Bank of America, of course, uh, one of the big money center banks at a new 52-week high, but uh, they're leading the new high list. Some of the cyclicals out there also at new highs, uh, some of the aerospace and defense names uh, like L3 Harris, Northrop Grumman, some of uh, small smattering of material names like Mosaic also hitting 52-week highs. Some consumer cyclical names also doing well. Business uh, excellent over at Home Depot and Costco. O'Reilly doing well. Uh, Lowe's doing well. Again, all 52-week highs. Just want to mention Bitcoin uh, Again, that Bitcoin futures uh, ETF that launched yesterday. Excellent volume on that, by the way. Didn't talk much about that, but 25 million shares uh, changed hands yesterday in the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF. We're going to do well north of that today. Of course, Bitcoin's at another record, but we're doing on track for 35 million potential shares for that. And there you see Bitcoin hitting a new up, uh, move on the upside. Kelly, what's going on here is earnings are continuing to come in strong. I think the one point of concern that I have, we can discuss in the next hour, is estimates for the fourth quarter, which is what matters now for stock prices, have stopped rising significantly. And that's a little bit of a problem when you have stock prices going up and earnings estimates on the flat side. That's a little bit of a warning sign for the markets. We'll talk more about that in the next hour. Kelly? All right, Bob, looking forward to it. Thank you, sir. Bob Bassani down at the NYSE. And with the Dow hitting a record high and the S&P trading above its own closing high, all of this is coming despite the yield on the 10-year climbing today and a sinister inflation warning from billionaire Paul Tudor Jones on Squawk Box. Listen. There's a combination of structural and cyclical forces that right now are all rolling in the same direction to say that inflation can be much worse than what we fear. And Fed Governor Christopher Waller warning that if inflation doesn't cool by year end, a, quote, more aggressive policy response than just tapering may well be warranted in 2022. So our investors paying up for stocks here at their own peril. Joining me now is David Katz. He's the chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, it makes me wonder if all this inflation talk is hot, uh, talk is hot air because the market is certainly not behaving like it's that worried about it. 
Well, last month, the uh, market was looking at all the negatives. This month, it's looking at the positives. We think inflation definitely is picking up. We think it's more than transitory. However, we don't think it's going to stay at a very hot level. We think it stabilizes under 3.5%. And with it under 3.5%, that's generally a good environment for the stock market. So we don't think inflation's going to derail the stock market. We do think the Fed probably is going to have to be a little bit more aggressive than they had wanted to be, but the market should be able to sustain that. Would it be bullish, David, for stocks if the Fed either tightens more quickly or raises interest rates sooner because investors are worried that they are going to overheat? We don't think so. We think there's so much excess liquidity in the market and so many people are borrowing uh, that we fear that when the Fed does start to raise rates, Uh, that the market could pull back some. So we don't think uh, when the Fed does start to pull back, that's going to be a bullish sign. We think the market's going to be able to navigate through it. But there are definitely some very speculative areas of the stock that have a lot of hot money, and that hot money will cool when rates start going up. Do you think, just kind of as a longtime market participant, this feels like another chase being on into year end? I mean, after the extraordinary year we've had where we started with the meme stock renaissance or whatever we'd want to call it, the the sort of rise of the meme stocks have had huge retail trader participation. We've finally had a 5% pullback. We've come roaring back and we have about six weeks left in the year. So, I mean, it's it's hard not to see people just chasing this thing higher, don't you think? And I just wonder where that leaves us come turn of the year. We, we agree with that. Uh, seasonally, uh, November, December have generally been very good periods. There's still this tremendous liquidity. Sentiment is pretty good. We think earnings season is going to be a little bit touch and go. There are going to be a lot of disappointments like the Brinkers today. But by and large, we think the market's going to have an upside bias into the end of the year. And, and we agree with you again that the more upside you have in the next month or two, it's just going to make 2022 a little bit tougher. We think when all is said and done, next year will probably regress to the mean like a 9% year rather than the very uh, solid year you're having right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, only a 9% year. Let me get some of your picks. We've talked in the past about financials. Obviously, interest rates are helping you out on that front today. But you also like some names in consumer staples, which our guest earlier this week said could be a place to go if you want uh, a little bit of a, a beneficiary from the environment that we're in, a sector that's often overlooked. Um, you have also picks like Becton Dickinson, Cisco, Viacom, and Verizon. Verizon, of course, maybe having some risk, uh, some more risk than usual, trading at almost a two-year low. So tell me why these stocks screen well for you. So we like them all on valuation and very good intermediate term outlooks. In terms of the Verizon, they actually had a better-than-expected quarter today, up their guidance a little bit, said at some point the board is going to start to look toward a share buyback. It's a 4.9% yield, and the P is about 10. Over the last six years, it sold at 12. So we think it's real cheap, and their business is getting better. Uh, in terms of Beckton, Dickinson, and Cisco, very strong businesses, uh, better than market prospects, selling at a discount to the market multiple. We think Cisco is one of the more overlooked technology companies, and they probably are one of the better hybrid plays because hmm. they – uh, can accommodate people staying home and getting back to the office. And M&T Bank had a very good quarter today, solid outlook. They're making an acquisition that should close within this quarter. And then we think the stock has some very good upside. They'll start buying the, the stock back. Uh, and it's very leveraged to rising interest rates. Yeah, well, some great uh, stats to rattle off there. Appreciate you always having that uh, right on the top of your head for us, David, and joining us with your thoughts today. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. David Katz is with Matrix Asset Advisor. Speaking of rates, we just had 20 years go up for auction, $24 billion worth. Let's head out to Rick Santelli. How'd it go, Rick? 
You know what? It is a strange auction. The grade, I gave it a D plus, dog plus. And the reason it was a D plus is because 2.10, 210 was the yield at the Dutch auction. But the when issued market was rallying. We saw it pricing around 2.06. So we ended up with a higher yield and a lower price. That was the high when issued of the day. So the pricing was horrible. But some of the internals were pretty good. If you look at 64.8 indirects, you know, those foreign buyers, that's the best since July of 20. And if you looked at the dealer amounts under 20%, that was very solid. Now, we know the auction didn't go well. Look at the two-day of 10-year note yields. Boy, you see that they popped from 162 to 164, and at 167 was the high right after the big inflation news came out of Germany last night. We're on pace for the highest close in five months, as you see on this chart going back to mid-May. And boon yields, even though the highest German inflation in 47 years since October of 1974 Boon yields dropped a bit, as you see on that chart. But when you open it up and go back 30 months, you can see we are hovering at some of the highest levels since May of 2019. Kelly, back to you. Even with one of the biggest hawks on the ECB retiring five years early, in fact, a lot to digest in the rate space today. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli. Turning now to China, UBS is double upgrading stocks there to overweight after 16 months with an underweight call. The firm says tighter monetary policy is working through the economy. Investors are too bearish on regulation, and the worst of the credit impulse is likely behind us. But at the same time, Chinese home prices in September just fell for the first time in six years. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing for us with the multiple problems facing the property market. Eunice? Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, Chinese home buyers don't yet have the conviction that UBS does. Uh, the price declines across 70 cities was less than 1% on the whole, but it does add to the concerns about the outlook for a real estate sector that Goldman Sachs has estimated um, it powers about a quarter of GDP. And of course, that's already shaky because of all the trouble of the debt laden uh, property developers such as Evergrande. In fact, Evergrande told the Hong Kong Exchange tonight that it failed to close a deal to sell a 51% stake in its property management business to a smaller rival for $2.6 billion. That makes it uh, just that much harder for the company to be able to make up for a missed payment of $83.5 million on an offshore bond that it was supposed to make about a month ago. And if it doesn't make by this weekend, it will default. Now, Chinese officials attempted again today to try to calm investors as well as home buyers, uh, saying that they don't have to panic. In fact, Liu He uh, had said, the vice premier, said that the property market has individual problems, but that overall the risks are controllable. Uh, trading in the shares of Evergrande are going to resume on Thursday. Kelly? Eunice, just as people are becoming more aware of how deep the problems run in the property sector, perhaps they're realizing that Chinese authorities can't let prices drop. I mean, it, it's just, too, you know, there's too much people have to gain. And I wonder if that is partly why UBS says, you know what, a lot of the negativity and the risks are now priced in. And I don't know if we call it a bailout, but ultimately they'll come up with something. Right. I mean, it is. It's very, very difficult because a lot of people here have their wealth wrapped up in homes. I mean, it's true all over the world, but especially here in China, where it's just so much harder to find ways for a regular Chinese to be able to find wealth. So uh, that's one of the, the reasons why a lot of people do believe that there could be somewhat of a floor. But at the same time, um, even 
you know, it's just just this week, uh, President Xi had actually penned an essay talking about how important it is for China to push through common prosperity and meet its common prosperity goals. And he actually mentioned real estate to uh, essentially saying that uh, what he says all the time, which is that homes are for living and not for speculation. So Mm -hmm. from the Chinese official commentary that we had today, a lot of those uh, officials, uh, of course, want to calm down the investors, but at the same time are not saying they're going to bail out any of these companies and or that they're going to really go easy on the developers. Yeah, they're walking such a tightrope. Eunice, thanks so much. We appreciate your reporting, as always. Eunice Yoon, live in Beijing. Still ahead, PayPal is reportedly exploring an acquisition of, yes, Pinterest. It's leading to big moves in both stocks today. We'll bring you all the details we have and look at what this potential deal could mean for both fintech and social media. Plus, only 65 days until Christmas and a new spending survey shows a growing gap when it comes to holiday shopping plans. We'll dig into those details next. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. PayPal is reportedly in talks to buy social media firm Pinterest for about $70 a share, which would make this nearly a $40 billion deal. And Reuters just reported this past hour that PayPal hopes to announce a deal by its own earnings report coming up on November 8th. Both stocks on the move, as you can see. Pinterest halted twice due to volatility earlier in the uh, session. PayPal and Pinterest have both officially declined to comment so far. So what would PayPal get out of this and why would Pinterest sell? Joining me now, Lisa Ellis, a senior equity analyst at Moffat Nathanson, and Alex Heath is a senior reporter at The Verge. Yes, he's the one who also broke the Facebook rename story, so we might ask you that on the way out. Lisa, let's start with you, and I really appreciate you being able to join us on such short notice today. What jumps into your head as to why PayPal would want to buy Pinterest? For the last couple of years, PayPal has been shifting more and more into commerce and integrating shopping and promotional services into their apps. So pursuing what they refer to as kind of the super app or broader commerce and payments app concept. If you recall, two years ago, they bought Honey, that, you know, kind of promotions uh, uh, service. Um, And this is somewhat... I'd say, I don't know if the word, right word is reactive, but it, it's a natural follow-on to Square's acquisition of Afterpay that we mm. saw two months ago, because Afterpay, as much as they're a known as a BNPL financing company, their real differentiation is their marketing and shopping services for consumers. And you know this acquisition, if, if PayPal ends up going ahead with it, will basically bring a whole bunch more sort of commerce and, and dis, you know, shopping discovery content into the uh, PayPal ecosystem. That is fascinating, Lisa, because you're making it clear this is not just a quirky one-off. Um, so, Alex, my question would be, why is it important for fintech platforms to have more and more ownership of social shopping, if we want to call it that? Yeah, well, what's happening in the background here is that the advertising technology that underpins all of these apps and honestly, the Internet is being rewritten, essentially, by companies like Apple, regulators in Europe and soon in the U.S., where it's going to be harder and harder for companies to track purchases and conversions across other companies. And so what you're seeing across the industry is everyone consolidating 
social commerce under one umbrella because if you have it all first party, that data becomes usable for conversion for proving the efficacy of advertising. That's incredibly valuable and it's only going to get more valuable. So if I may, we can say this is Apple's fault, uh, Alex. My word's not yours, but explain to me again what the advantages are for people to be outside of Apple's ecosystem and why they now have to quickly assemble scale. Well, because what Apple did with its iOS update is, is essentially through a prompt break the ability for, say, PayPal to track that or Pinterest to track that, uh, you know, someone bought something and then finished the purchase on PayPal, for example. But if they can combine, then all of that data is inside their own walls and they can use it. And therefore, if they have advertising ambitions that are greater than what they have now, it becomes even better. And, you know, Obviously, Pinterest gets the, the infrastructure that PayPal provides. Okay, that's really helpful. Lisa, remind me, I believe you have a buy rating on PayPal. Do you, from an analyst point of view, like this move? Uh, I'd say TBD. <laughs> if, this was, uh, if this was 10, 10 billion, 15 billion, that sort of range, no brainer. This is an area definitely of increased investment by PayPal to add more of this rich commerce into the ecosystem. So it's what they call, you know, beyond the button, more than just payment checkout, that they're adding more content, rich content, both for their merchants and their consumers. But that said, in the broader strategy for PayPal, we've been very keen on PayPal expanding more aggressively internationally by expanding more aggressively into other payment flows like in-store shopping, bill payment, B2B payments. And so going and spending, you know, 40 billion going in this direction means they're not spending that 40 billion in some of these other areas. And I think we have to kind of really be think through those relative trade-offs and, uh, you know, and whether we would have put this one, I'd say, you know, top on the list. One quick follow-up, Lisa. We And you correctly noted that the Square Afterpay and some of these were going to set off a, an M&A spree, but I don't think we saw it taking quite this form. So how do we have to be thinking about this next? Does it involve Visa and MasterCard at any level? But on the social side as well, what about Snap? I mean, who else is out there that that we should be thinking about? Uh, yeah, it's, you're right. This is maybe not the direction we would have anticipated, but certainly expecting more M&As. So now you'd have to say, okay, the other players that would immediately come to mind for me that are in, impacted by this, yes, would be somebody like some of the other big social platforms like a, a Snap ones or an Etsy, for example, ones that are independent, but then also players like a Shopify, mm -hmm. um, you know, who's, it very heavily engaged with this exact same set of merchants and set of payment flows, you know, so is there something that they do um, uh, from a retaliatory perspective? Um, uh, and, and then even, you know, even as I, I think I've commented before, players like American Express, hmm. who might not be the first ones that come to mind, but American Express's core business really hinges on this deep integration of consumers and merchants with rich data and uh, and, you know, very unique marketing experiences. And so, you know, the, this consolidation of commerce into these kind of other big platforms, you know, might ultimately trigger uh, a move by them as well. Interestingly. Fascinating. Again, really appreciate both of you kind of helping to shed some light onto what would happen with this deal and, and the implications there. And just before we go, Alex, and again, to reiterate, because we're going to talk about this in, in a couple of moments, but this Facebook name rebrand that I guess you're saying is coming next week. Do you have anything to add uh, in, I guess, the 12 or so hours? It's more than that now since this news first broke. 
there's been some wonderful memes about what the name could be. People have very strong thoughts. Um, I saw AOC and some others tweeting about it earlier. Um, I think this is just Facebook pulling an alphabet, essentially, what Google did, where it kind of named itself into this conglomerate. And I think this is part of Zuckerberg's goal to really distance the future of the company from what we think of it as today, which is you know traditional social media. I think they want to be known for AR, VR, and the metaverse, however you want to define that. Yes, and I agree with you on, on some of the memes. Uh, great stuff. Thank you both. Alex Heath and Lisa Ellis joining us to talk uh, tech, te- uh, tech today, she said. Coming up, the Port of L.A. is planning to work around the clock now to address the backlog of ships and containers, but that actually might not fully solve our supply chain problems. The driver shortage may be the next shoe to drop in the squeeze. We'll have the latest coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Look at this number for the Dow, 35,605, a record high. First crossed above it about an hour ago. The S&P above its, uh, no, I think now we're just below the closing high, which is 4533. Uh, the S&P and NASDAQ are both trying for their sixth straight day of gains. But the NASDAQ is actually sitting out the rally today. It's down about a third of 1%. And again, we've seen interest rates uh, move sharply higher earlier on. Now, the iShares Russell 1000 value ETF is moving to the upside. The IWD hitting a new all-time high itself today. Anthem, the best performer, up more than 6%, hitting a record high on strong earnings at a guidance hike. Night Swift Transportation, speaking of trucking, also setting a new high on an earnings beat that's up 6% uh, and seeing a surge in freight demand. Now, used car retailers are also getting a bump in the market today after Lithium Motors saw third-quarter profits nearly double from last year. The company says tight supply levels are due to high demand and the global chip shortage, and it's pushed car prices to record levels. They are the beneficiary, the biggest laggard of the group year to date as well. They're up 20% since January, adding 4% today, while AutoNation, for instance, is up 70%, and AutoNation itself is adding 2.5% today. Let's get to Christina Parts and Evelis now for a CNBC News update. Christina? Hi, Kelly. Here is what's happening at this hour. In Florida, a medical examiner has been called to a na- nature reserve where authorities are searching for Brian Laundry. A lawyer for the Laundry family says some items belonging to Brian were found in the park. Laundry remains the only person of interest in the death of his girlfriend, Gabby Petito. Also in Florida, Nicholas Cruz, the gunman accused in the 2018 Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, pleading guilty to 17 counts of murder and 17 counts of attempted murder. Family members of victims packing the courtroom to watch today's hearing. A jury will determine whether Cruz will be sentenced to death or life in prison without parole. On the news, more on the guilty plea and the penalty phase tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing a COVID vaccine mandate for all city workers starting today through October 29th. City employees who receive their first dose at a city-run site will receive $500. But after October 29th, unvaccinated employees will be placed on unpaid leave until they get their shots. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Christina, thank you. Americans are watching but not subscribing. Dining in is out and retailers are only hurting themselves. All of that and more is coming up in today's rapid fire right after this. And if you missed Melissa Lee's documentary, Generation Gamble, remember it was about the gamification of everything, you can stream it now on Peacock. Highly recommended. The exchange is back after this. Alrighty, 
Let's catch you up on a few other stories. It is a busy news day, uh, but let's hit a few more, shall we? These other stories should also be on your radar, and they're not even other. They're some of the main ones. Here to break down the headlines today, Delano Sapporo, who is founder of New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor. CNBC's Christina Partsinevelis and Michael Santoli join me as well today. Welcome to everybody. Let's start with Netflix, where the shares are sliding 2%. Now, they added 4.4 million new subs last quarter. That handily beat estimates, but as our own Alex Sherman points out, Nearly 99% of subscriber growth came from outside of the U.S. and Canada. They also expect to add 8.5 million new subs next quarter, their biggest forecast since the first quarter of 2019. But still, reminders, it's a zero-sum game for streamers these days. During Facebook's global outage earlier this month, Netflix said its own user engagement popped about 14%. Delano, Netflix, why is it down today? I think it's a mixture of, Kelly, I think it's a mixture of, you know, really profit-taking. We've seen the stock do incredibly well over the past couple of months here. And so I think investors are doing a little profit-taking. We saw a little bit of the revenue, the top line was in line with projections. So I think that was a little bit of disappointment for some investors. But as you mentioned, you know, subscriber growth was strong. Obviously, most of it was in that APAC region, but we are seeing that net ad subscriber growth. They projected a lot higher for the fourth quarter. And I think what you're looking at, it, Netflix is, again, they're making it clear that they're not just, you know, having a battle with linear TV or other competitors. It's also for all entertainment. And so when you see the moves that they're making in buying a game studio, see the other moves that they're making as far as, you know, audio things, this is an area where Netflix, I think, is going to have some strength there. So I think this is still a company where you'd want to be holding if you're an investor. And you really want to make sure. Yeah, I think this is a really good position for investors still, Kelly. Mike, what would you add? I mean, this is we obviously know at some point as well that once you saturate the U.S. and the mature markets, you have to grow internationally. But I understand that they're maybe less, uh, you know, dollars per subscriber. Yeah, that's the question. Um, I do think expectations got pretty aggressive going into this number two days ago. We were talking about how uh, the analysts were ramping their, their subscriber growth expectations. I think it's a pretty benign little pullback in terms of just tactically for the stock. But, you know, as much as Netflix wants to point to things like Squid Game as how they're kind of brilliant and they can source these things globally, you really have to buy into the idea that it's a repeatable process and that, you know, if in fact you're that hit driven to drive global subs, can we count on you to do it again? Or do you just take so many shots that you're going to catch one of these every now and then. That's a big picture question, I think, that hovers over it. But not to me, not a very negative response by the market to this number. Yeah, they're down 2.6 percent, back to 622. I think that's like levels we were trading at last week. All right, yeah. next up, after the onslaught of bad news and hearings around Facebook, the social media giant is reportedly moving towards a complete rebrand of the parent company, similar to what Alphabet did in 2015, or I should say what Google did by renaming itself Alphabet. And this could be something meta. This summer, Zuckerberg told The Verge, quote, maybe five years from now or seven years from now, people will primarily think about us as a metaverse company rather than a mobile Internet company. Shares of Facebook are higher today after being basically flat over the past three months. Christina, is this pivot what the company needs? You know, we just heard from the reporter who broke the story, said they're trying to kind of emphasize the future and not the past. Well, this is great timing, right, given the fact that, one, you have the Britain regulator uh, fining Facebook just about $70 million. The fact that just today in D.C., Attorney General uh, is uh, pretty much naming Zuckerberg personally liable for misleading users about their private information. Wow. So, yes, timing is uh, is amazing for Facebook to do this. But I think we could start to talk about the future, metaverse. Uh, it's not something that's going to disappear. Appear. It is the connection of our work, our virtual, uh, everything all in one. And Facebook is moving forward. There are rumors about wearables. They're using their Oculus headsets and really trying to advance that. The opportunities for gaming in there. The problem with this word metaverse right now is, one, we don't have the 5G technology, which is why so many mobile carriers are trying to rush forward with that. And then problem number two is the fact that 
our worlds are still not connected when we talk about Facebook. If you buy something on Facebook, can you transfer that over to uh, Roblox? Can you transfer that over to possibly Netflix once right. they get into gaming? So that's an issue going forward. Yeah, and we have names, Delano, like Roblox and Epic, which are you know trying to kind of take pole position here as well. Do you think it's too early to invest in the metaverse? Do you like Facebook's rebrand here? And what would you do with the whole sector, if we want to call it that? <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Facebook has done a great job of kind of rebranding the story here. But I think, you know, I would definitely be something. This is an area where I think investors should definitely take a close look at. I like this move because I do think if we're looking towards a more digitally immersive world and we're looking at AR and virtual reality being more immersed into the real world, this is an area where Facebook and Roblox and some of these names can really do this well, right? Um, and so as an investor, I think that's really, really enticing. Obviously, for Facebook, from a fundamental standpoint, they're still trading relatively cheap. Uh, they were able to kind of bounce back from some, some of the negative news that we saw. But I think this is a great way to rebound the story. They've never been afraid to kind of take those leaps when it comes to putting themselves out there in a more aggressive standpoint. So if someone's going to do it, I think Facebook has a great chance of doing that. All right. And Michael, it is sort of a good point to look back on, for example, the alphabet name change five years ago, which yeah. to me changes the, the word I have to say, but has done nothing else to change the company that I'm talking about. In that instance, it's absolutely true. Uh, just because Google is a verb, a noun, and everything else that we discuss all the time. Although, you know, as much as it seems kind of a cynical move, they want to change the subject. All these corporate rebrands, no matter which one you want to bring up, always seems like a little bit of a, of a kind of a cumbersome exercise. <laughs> I, I get it. And um, one of my tenets uh, that I think gets under, uh, kind of underappreciated in general is how much managements of companies do things to kind of communicate with their own employees and to set priorities and to refocus them on something new. And I think that's part of what's going on here is they want to say, let's not be associated exclusively with our legacy slowest growth product. We want to be all the other things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's talk next about one of the worst hit sectors by the labor and the supply crunch, and it is sit-down restaurants. Brinker releasing some pre-earnings financial information. It wasn't pretty. The Chili's parent company sees revenue in line, as well as higher comps and strong traffic. But higher commodity and labor costs going to take a huge bite out of profit margins. The CEO said, quote, we have taken immediate incremental pricing options, increasing our full-year target to 3 to 3.5% to offset inflationary costs and protect margins. Shares of Brinker... They're down as much as 10% today, and the whole dining industry is lower in sympathy with Cheesecake Factory, Bloomin' Brands, down between 18 and 30%, Mike, over the past six months. Why are they bearing the brunt of this? Um, is, it, is it, I don't want to say unfair, we understand why it's happening. Sure. I guess, do we ask, is it an opportunity for the long run, or can their model just not keep up? Well, I think that is the model has to be adjusted because, if you know, there's a way to look at this big picture and say these companies have been in the business of underpaying their employees and undercharging their customers. It's always been about kind of more calories per dollar. You know, I like that metric, uh, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at the same time, kind of keeping uh, their staff a little bit on a shoestring. And there's something unique going on in the context of, yes, wage growth everywhere, labor shortage everywhere. But retail and restaurant in particular, people are just opting out and they're saying whether it's just not the kind of employment I'm willing to take if there are other options or if I have a little bit of a cushion that was built up by some of the government support payments. And it's hard to imagine, Christina, what they can do to 
kind of come out of this in a stronger position. I mean, literally, we've already all seen the tablets at tables and they're doing what they can. It doesn't exactly enhance the experience, in my opinion. Well, I guess the question, and Mike just talked about it, is will they continue to increase prices going forward to offset the increase in labor costs? And Chipotle is an example that just in June they increased prices and said no, there was no major pushback. So maybe we all are willing to pay a little bit more for fast food. But how many times does that have to happen in order to offset these extra commodity costs, labor costs? And so that's the concerning part going forward, especially to the digital side. What is Brinker doing to improve their digital platform so that we're all still buying the food right. via our apps? And Delano, I know we obviously are talking about you know publicly traded names here. It's not like restaurants are a big part of the S&P, but they actually are a big part of, if you think about small businesses and kind of the bread and butter of towns and communities across the country. And I think what's yeah. What's troubling about this is it reminds you that if this is what the publicly traded, the biggest, most powerful ones are saying, it's really bad out there for the rest of the restaurant industry. And I wonder if they need some more targeted relief at this point. Exactly, Kelly. And I agree with Mike. The, 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 the fundamental you know, business model has to be adjusted right now. You're going to see casual diners being a really tough spot, right? Margins are decreasing. And I think if you're looking at the high-end restaurants, those type of end customers will be willing to forgo many, any price increases. So right now, it's really tough for the casual diners. And I think, as mentioned, that, that, that model has to be changed because they're really in a tough position right now, Kelly. Yeah. And I even did pick up at a local Italian place near my parents, $27 for my lunch order. It was a pasta uh, with chicken. It was the size salad. And of course, what I do, I say, I'm, ne- I'm never going to do that again. You know, and it's really, really sad because that hurts them uh, far more than any price increases might be helping at the moment. All right. She went off on a rant. Uh, never we'll say never. Yeah. No, no believe me. And, and, not for $27. Delano Sapporo, Christina Parsonevelis and Michael Santoli. Thank you guys very much today. Uh, that wraps things up here on Rapid Fire. But we've got even more news before we head to the break. CNBC's Kate Rooney was just able to confirm the deal talks between PayPal and Pinterest with a source saying they're in the late stages. Uh, You can see the shares there again. PayPal down about 6% on what could be a nearly $40 billion acquisition, reportedly, according to Reuters, looking around $70 a share. Pinterest is well below that level, though. So even though they're up 12%, maybe uh, the market doubting somewhat the details here. Again, Pinterest trading around 62. We've also got a news alert on Netflix. Transgender employees and their allies are holding a rally and facing counter protesters ahead of a walkout at Netflix's Epic Building in Hollywood. Now, this is all in protest of the hand of Dave Chappelle's latest stand-up special, The Closer, and the firing of a transgender employee. The company said leaked information about the monetary value of those specials to the streaming giant. Many on Netflix's staff were angered, both by Chappelle's special, saying it was transphobic, and by internal communications from executives about it. Up until yesterday, co-CEO Reed Hastings had stayed mum on the topic. His counterpart, Ted Sarandos, had defended the special, but in an interview published in Variety last night, after the company's earnings report, Sarandos said, quote, obviously I screwed up that internal communication communication. First and foremost, I should have led with a lot more humanity. He still stands by the special and said he is also firmly committed to continuing to support artistic freedom for creators and will work on increasing representation both on screen and off. Again, live pictures of what's happening at Netflix in Los Angeles. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The newest housing data shows rates are rising and refis are dropping. They're down 7% for the week. Diana Olick is here with the details. Diana? 
Yeah, Kelly, the refi market is quickly drying up as rates continue to rise. The Mortgage Bankers Association reported the average rate on the 30-year fixed rose again last week, hitting 3.23% from 3.18. That rate was 21 basis points lower the same week a year ago. It's now at the highest level since April. And as a result, refi demand fell 7% for the week and was 22% lower year over year. And refis had been big business for lenders. Rocket, for example, did 88% of its business in refis, according to its latest quarterly release. You can see the stock is down in the last six months as rates have been rising. United Wholesale Mortgage, also in the red over the past six months. Rates have been moving in a narrow range, but the Fed seems clear they are going to taper their bond buying, and that will mean higher rates going forward. In fact, the Mortgage Bankers Association's 2022 forecast has refis dropping over 60% next year as the 30-year fix heads to 4%. They do expect to see more purchase mortgage activity, but not a lot more. As rates rise in this already pricey market, more potential buyers could be sidelined. The big question now, of course, is will higher rates finally start to take some of the heat out of home prices? Or is the shortage of homes for sale still going to keep them inflated, Kelly? Right, because as nervous as it would make everybody for prices to drop, if they keep going up and rates are higher, affordability, which I think is already at historic lows, is going to get even worse. Right. And it's not even a question of of prices dropping. I doubt they would drop really on a national level at all. It's just a question of not going up 18 percent or 20 percent as we're seeing on the new home sales. So if you just saw maybe prices continue to go up at around 4 percent, which is a much more normal historical rate, that would be OK. And again, if they could take some of the heat out and get some of those first time buyers back in, that would be helpful. And we all feel your pain with the leaf blower. Uh, Diana, thank you very much. <laughs> Cue the leaf blower. <laughs> Diana Olick in Washington today. Up next, President Biden pushing the port of Los Angeles to operate all day, every day. But one freight CEO says that won't be enough to fix the supply chain snags. And it could actually make some problems worse. She'll join me to discuss right after this quick break. global supply chain disruption means a huge challenge for businesses and consumers alike, so much so that President Biden announced last week that the Port of Los Angeles will stay open 24-7 to help ease congestion. But my next guest says while that will help the bottleneck, uh, it's here to stay as operating the port around the clock amplifies some key problems like driver and capacity shortages. Joining me now is Lily Shen. She's the CEO of Transfix. They use AI to connect shippers with truckers, and they recently announced a SPAC deal with G-Squared and plan to go public early next year. We spoke about that Lily, it's great to have you back. Um, and it's interesting to hear that you do think this could make things worse in the near term. Uh, how so? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me again. Well, you know, I think the opening of ports is a good first step, and it's definitely a positive change in the right direction at relieving one of the bottlenecks in the overall system. Uh, but as we know, the system is incredibly complex, and I think there's going to be downstream uh, ripple effects. And, you know, when when we look at the overall system, the, um, you know, the capacity shortage, driver shortage uh, still remains. And therefore, the importance of shippers relying on technology partners, uh, it, it will become increasingly more important to help manage the volatility and provide them with the level of flexibility that they need yeah. to find reliable capacity. You know, you can tell the politicians are grasping for answers here. I've seen a, a report that the president or someone could send in the National Guard to ease the, the capacity shortage. I've seen, I think, local politicians saying that they should ban uh, ships from idling because then it caused the oil leak in California. Nobody really knows what to do. You are the specialist and the expert here, Lily. So how do we solve this problem? 
oh, this is going to be truly a team effort, Kelly. Um, you know, I think that it will involve many players coming together. I think it's uh, going to be incredibly important that the role of technology plays a far bigger role. And, you know, I would say that the, the bottom line is that the widespread te- adoption of technology will become increasingly important to drive far more efficiency less waste, better for the environment, more fulfilling job opportunities for drivers and for carriers, uh, which will ultimately be better for consumers and helping small business small businesses grow across the entire ecosystem. I, I think you want a national uh, emergency order that everyone uses Transfix, which <laughs> and then you might have your own capacity shortages to deal with. Uh, tell me about the driver shortage, Lily, and, and I think you're absolutely onto something here that Stuff can only move. And, and we did this. When we did that massive special. I don't know if our viewers remember when we had, you know, reporters in China and at the port and then at a, a trans, what do they call it, a, a switchover station for truckers in the Midwest. And back here, the trucking shortage is the reason why there is a bottleneck at the port. It's not just the operating hours. How do we resolve that? Yeah, the, 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 the driver shortage is real. Um, it, we're currently short about 80,000 drivers. That's still high. Um, but it is lower than uh, compared to three years ago. But I think given the shortage, it's increasingly becoming more important to be able to provide carriers and drivers a far better experience. We have to make it easier for them. We have to make it easier on their lives. And we have to be able to help them better utilize their trucks and access the freight that they're looking for. Um, and, you know, I think I think this is where the importance of really driving a human centered and technology enabled solution comes in. Uh, technology hasn't played, you know, uh, uh, hasn't played a critical enough role in the overall supply chain for a while. And now with uh, with modern with modern interfaces and modern software solutions, we can make it far more easier for the carriers and drivers today. Listen, I really think technology could leapfrog this problem by deploying autonomous vehicles if it's not solved quickly. I know it's a huge step from here to there, but a crisis like this is exactly what can spur people towards something like that. Lily, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll check back in with you soon. Thanks, Kelly. Lily Shen with Transfix. And with just 66 days until Christmas and all the goods and everything trying to get to where it's going by then, a new survey finds Americans are planning to spend about 5% more this holiday season compared with last year's. But if you dig in, there is a huge gap. We'll tell you about it next. Welcome back. Deloitte's annual consumer spending survey has holiday numbers that sound good at first, but not when you look more closely. You see a pretty high disparity this year between high and low income households, and the supply chain has a lot to do with it. Higher prices, you get the idea. Courtney Reagan is here with the details. Courtney? Hi there, Kelly. Yeah, so the headline number does show American households plan to spend on average 5% more this holiday season than last, which would be a strong season and getting closer to 2019 levels, signaling a near normal season. But as you mentioned, there's a pretty big disconnect in which households spend or plan to spend more and a lot of worry about inventory and pricing. So higher income Americans or those with incomes of $100,000 or more plan to spend 15% more this holiday season than last year. That's five times more than lower income households or those with incomes of less than 50,000. The lower income households say they plan to spend 22% 
less than last year. There's also households that don't plan to spend at all. 11.5% say they're not shopping this holiday season. That's more than double 2020. And two-thirds of those non-spenders are indeed lower income households. Now, consumers are worried about getting what they want this holiday season. 75%, Kelly, are concerned about stockouts, and nearly 70% do expect higher prices on the goods that are available. The good news is the worry might be worse than the reality because by comparison, Deloitte says 60% of retail executives are worried about getting holiday orders in time, and 50% are concerned about those higher prices. Now, a third of retail execs say that their holiday inventory order volumes are actually up double digits compared to last year. So could be a nice positive surprise if the retail executives are right and the consumer worries are wrong. Back over to you, And, I, you know, Court, this would have, it seems, obvious uh, implications for all the different kinds of retailers more geared towards the high and low end. Uh, I doubt Deloitte itself goes into that, but I'm sure those on the street uh, can, right. you know, kind of play mix and match. Yeah, exactly. And Deloitte, when they did this survey, were surveying retailers that have a billion dollars or more in sales. So they are looking at the at the big ones. And we know that Best Buy CEO Corey Berry has already come out and said, look, we've got 50 percent more inventory for holiday this year than last 20 percent more than two years ago. And that's always a big player in the holiday season because, you know, electronics are always a hot gift item. And that's a great point. And you mentioned it earlier this week as well, but it bears emphasizing at a time when we're talking about everyone's supply chain problems that they have more, uh, again, a lot easier for those on the upper uh, end of things than on the lower end maybe to, to show up and right. shop there, but still should put them in a pretty attractive position. Courtney, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Courtney Reagan with the details on what holiday spending could look like in 2021. That does it for The Exchange, everybody, but stay right there. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.